0: I have this guidance from the Spirit of God for a few weeks now that I should speak on one topic and that is to continue to declare to the congregation that life with God is joyful and life without God is a joyless Christian life. Joyless life, whether it's Christian life or not. What is life with God? Life with God is when God is at the center of our life. And he is the one who, the captain of our life. When our faith, our life is anchored in Christ, anchoring in Christ, and that's very important. It is anchoring in Christ. Anchoring in Christ is uh, something that we do. The ships, they put an anchor in when they are in a very shaky weather, they put an anchor. And uh, as a country boy, I have seen this also like boatmen doing that in the backwaters behind my just behind my house when there is wind and they will put their oars on this thing and they stand still and that big bamboo pole is that gives that is anchoring in christ but the boat still shakes boat still takes it is tossed by the wind and um, sometimes these old boats that my our people used they may also be leaking we we'll have to scoop water out of it as well But one assurance is that we are not going to sink, drown, because there is an anchor. So that is what life with God is. When Christ has taken control of our life, and God is in charge of our life, even in the midst of lacks, needs, difficulties, sicknesses, poverty, apparent poverty, I will only call a Christian lack of resources an apparent poverty, because it is not a real poverty. It's only for a few while. It's a apparent poverty, apparent lack. That word should be used. I think it should be qualified. But the life without joy, as we saw last time, you know, last week I preached about the secret of happiness. If you missed the last service, uh, it is available on the Google podcast now. You can listen to it again if you like to. Now, this is the story of 20 years when the Israelites had no peace, no joy in their life. Because they were under the Philistines, the hegemony of the Philistines. Twenty years, joy was taken from them. There was, no, there was God in their life. And the story also resolves how they came, the joy returned to their midst, as God returned to their midst. Little bit of the background of this story, I hope that will help most of us. The Israelites were under the rule or dominion of the Philistines, a foreign uh, nation, for 20 years. That is how this chapter begins. The Philistines were a group of people who migrated from the Aegean Islands. If you don't know where Aegean Islands are, you don't have to look up in an atlas now. It is south, the sea south of the present day, south, uh, yes, south east, I think, southwest, yes, southwest of the modern Turkey, the underbelly of Turkey. And they have been coming to Canaan, but they were seafarers, they were migrating in different ways, maybe since the days of Abraham, but there probably became so much organized, and uh, around 13th century, by the time, Israel came to Canaan to occupy it. And this group of people had settled on the coastline, the most fertile lands in the Ender Canaan, called the Sharon Valley. And they organized themselves into a confederation, a, a federation of five cities in that. And they became very strong. They had monopoly over iron, the iron, te- iron technology. They only knew they were advanced metallurgical knowledge. So they had all the weapons that they need to fight and to conquer and to invade nations. And they occupied the most fertile nations, fertile as parts of various nations, including Lower Egypt as well. And God used them as an instrument of his wrath. When Israel sinned, God used them to punish Israel from time to time. And we might have read the story of Samson. When God, when people cried to the Lord during Samson's day, God used Samson to deliver them, at at least temporarily, a temporary relief from the Philistines. That is the story of Samson. But the nuisance continued. And it became so intense in the days of Prof. priest Eli, chapter 1 to 7. You read 1 Samuel 1 to 7. In his time, there was utter godlessness in Israel. Eli was ne- very neglig- uh, uh, negligent of his duties. His sons were wicked. They were uh, sleeping with the, the servants, in the, uh, the women, and they were uh, grabbing the offering, the best part of offering which would go to god and the word of god says the word of god god has stopped those fed up in such a way he stopped talking to them that means that the visions of god was rare and if you read one samuel one to seven the chapters up to this portion that we have and they were very they were humbled they were defeated in a battle israel was defeated in a battle and that day Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli, the high priest and the two sons of the high priest. And one of their wives, they the, the Hophni and Phinehas died in the battle, and Eli <laughs> seems to have had a stroke, and his wife died, the, one of their uh, wives died after giving birth to a boy. She died in her birth, immediately after her uh, giving deli- uh, delivery. That was it. And that day, the app captured the Ark of the Covenant, which was the centerpiece of worship in Israel, was captured by the Philistines and the little temple placed in Shiloh was destroyed. That was very sad. And 20 years they were under the Philistine dominion, domination. They were heavily taxed. They had to pay tribute. They were plundered by the strong Philistines. For example, when you go for harvest, the Philistine soldier or Philistine person will come, taxman will come with his soldiers and demand your harvest. Maybe take half of it uh, away. And you cannot pay debtors. You don't have enough to feed your family. And rest of the year, the poor isolated farmer has to starve. Because the Philistine had an upper hand. They had the weapons and also the tools. Similarly, they will walk into your streets, plunder the shops, and nobody can do anything. Because the Philistines were, they, they feared the Philistines. Nobody stood up to them. So in that sense, every way, their joy was taken. They came home. On the way, they were plundered. The women were raped. The children were abused. And nobody could utter a word against the Philistines. 20 years, long 20 years. And there's no place to go and pray also. In, uh, if you read chapter 1 and 2, we read that every year, Israelite families used to go to Shiloh, celebrate the festival, and have a fellowship meal in the temple. And those days when Elkanah and his wives went there, and they had a celebration there, and they could pray there, they could sing there, they could join the worship there, but those days are gone because the temple is destroyed, the shrine is destroyed. There is no ark, the center of worship has moved away. There is no priest, the entire priest family is killed. There, is no, there are no priests as well. And people were, their joy was deprived. They were deprived of any joy, no spiritually, physically, economically, politically, There is no reason to celebrate anything, because God had moved. And when the boy was born, one of the priests who died, Eli's grandson was born. And Eli heard that the Ark of the Covenant is taken, Philistines had won the battle. He said, he named that boy, Ichabod. He said, Glory has departed from Israel. Yes. The glory of God has departed them. Now, as I said earlier, I said this problem had a resolution. It was not supposed to be like that. The children of God are not supposed to live a life of joyless life, grumpy life, sad and sorrowful. There has to be a change. This has to be resolved. This has there is a resolution. There are two ways that the people try to resolve it. One, though it is a little later chronologically, a military solution. One day, the Philistines, when they were very strong, they came to a valley and they challenged Israel, the people of Israel. They were situated on one side of the hill and Israelite soldiers were situated on another side. And uh, they had all the weapons, swords and uh, shields and all that. But Israelites had all nothing. Maybe they had some bamboo sticks. Because they didn't have iron. Iron to make weapons. They didn't have. Because the iron monopoly was with the Philistines. And uh, they only knew how to purify iron ore. They only knew how to make swords and spears. They were, Israelite was still in the stone age when they were in the iron age. See that difference. So then they put forward one man. And uh, they said, okay it's very clear that you are not going to win it because we have better soldiers and better army, better uh, weapons as as well. So let's have a duel. Do you have a person to come and fight with the giant Goliath? And Saul the king trembled because he was unusually tall, such a strong built man, well armored, there is no place he was wearing metal metal uh, vehicle coats that nobody can do anything to him, even if he had suitable weapons. But you know how the story resolved. David, the young man, a very little boy, killed him by the help of God with just a stone and a sling. He had five stones in his hand, but he had only used one. The first stone he fell. The four one, the other four was just reserved for in case any giants came. But. The solution, Saul, continued, but this was a temporary solution. But the the, the nuisance of the Philistines continued. And Saul tried to find a military solution, fight with these people. And you know what happened, read the uh, first Samuel. Saul died, in the sense he committed suicide, because he thought the Philistines, that is what happened. His son was uh, killed and many soldiers were killed. But that military solution did not work. That's what I was trying to say. Saul tried to find a military solution to the Philistine hegemony, which didn't work. Proven. Many years, Samson didn't work. Goliath, temporary relief. And finally, Saul was killed or died in the battle. But that's the end of it? No. But there was a spiritual solution. That's what I'm going to focus. This spiritual solution is what we see here. What is the spiritual solution? When the Israelites cried out to the Lord, when they were under 20 years of the hegemony, the domination of the Philistines, they cried to the Lord. But Samuel, the prophet, young man, he said, okay, we have a solution. And that solution is with God. Let's come back to God. 1 Samuel 17, 13. You know, we read that at the end of the day the whole cities were restored. 1 Samuel 7, 13, 14. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel when he was alive the lord checked the philistines kept them pushed them back to their cities their five cities along the, along the coast did not invade into the israelite promised land they were kept at bay by the hand of the lord and the hand of the lord was against the philistines all the days of the summer, days of samuel the lord the cities that philistines had taken from israel were restored. That was, they got back they, the cities that were lost from Akron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Not only that, and added this thing the people who are almost already dwelling in the land, there was peace as well. Now, how did we come to this point? How did these 20 years of godlessness, days of joylessness, days of rejoicing in the land, how did it come to an end? How did peace come? How did joy come? How did prosperity return? How did, in a sense, life return to them? That is the story, That we, that is what we are going to look at today. How we can bring God back? and give Him, hand over, the control of our life, so that there is joy in a life with God. And the days of joyless serving God, grumpy, sad, unsatisfied, that days can be, we can bring that an end to that days. That's what this passage is about. There are many steps. Number one, it all starts with a longing. It starts with a longing for God. First Samuel 7.2 From the day that the ark was lodged at the a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. When their time came every year to go to Jerusalem, to to Shiloh, off with a kid, with a, with a lamb or a pair of turtle doves, and to sacrifice it and to have a fellowship meal in the temple precincts, the 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 Shiloh tabernacle precincts, they said, "Oh my God, we don't have Shiloh, we don't have Eli anymore." We don't have anyone in his place. We don't have an altar. We don't have the the Ark of the Covenant. It is Ikhavoth. Glory has departed from the Lord. Instead of going and celebrating and rejoicing in the Lord, they sat and lamented. But they lamented. (laughs) That is the most important thing. They lamented. They prayed to God. In their grief, they turned to God. And the old house of the Lord lamented after the Lord. That means, they cried to the Lord. They were not simply crying, sitting there and crying and cursing their their, uh, destiny. They were not cursing their destiny. But they turned to God. They longed for a change. The farmers, when their harvest was taken from them by force by the Philistines, they cried not at their loss but to us. They cried unto the Lord. When the merchants, when their shops were turned upside down, plundered, they cried not at the loss, yes, but they turned to God and cried to God. When the streets were raided, when their factories were raided, they cried to the Lord. When their women were raped, when their children were abused, when their weak were violated against, they cried unto the Lord. God returns to us first when we have a longing for God. That's what we need. The first thing for restoration, for a joyless, joyful Christian life, is a longing to leave the things that we dread and the oppression that we go through. Most of us are going through that. We have fears. We have fears. Or, yeah, let me tell you that we have fears. Especially in this time. What will happen to me? What will happen to my job? What will happen to my income? What will happen to my uh, children? What will happen to the place I live? We live in dread because of uncertainties. But we have to have hope in God, to believe that God is the author of better days. Options with God is not over. It's always open. God has alternatives. We haven't come to the end of the horizon. We are not hitting, the horizon is not closing in, and we are hitting the horizon, no. No. God is widening the horizon. We have to believe that. Then only we can cry unto the Lord. Lord, change my situation. Lord, change the way I am. Lord, change the surroundings. Lord, change the problems I have. We give this control. I tried it. I tried it many times. It doesn't work. I admit my failure and I give the keys to you. Don't we do that? Yes. Many times I seek help, when things does not work, I, I am a person who believes in uh, solving out my own problems and sometimes I help others as well. See simple things, your microwave doesn't work, or just a like, washing machine doesn't work. You press this and that and all that, it doesn't work. You kicked it hard, it doesn't work still, then what do you do? You go to an expert, you go to the manufacturer and say, please, fix it. I take it as hard as I can, but nothing happened. Take control of it. And cry unto him. And even if he says, it's a six months warranty, now it is six months and three days, you'll have to pay. Still, we may bargain. We will say that. We believe that man has a solution for it. That's what we do when we go through distrust. Turn to God. The second step is not only longing, which is a, which is sort of a, what you can say, emotional thing, but returning to him. Not just long, but there's no point returning, longing. I hope that, oh, my washing machine will work and sit there and say that my washing machine may work, will work. But go to him. Pick the phone and call him. Seek help returning to Him. 1 Samuel 7, 3-4 says, Lord and so Samuel told them, look, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel when they were crying unto the Lord, if you are returning to the Lord, you return to the Lord with all your heart. Don't keep one part of your heart for other alternatives. All of your heart. And put away foreign gods. So they had, in one hand, they had the asherahs and the baals, when they were crying into the Lord. If God doesn't answer, I have an asherah to pray to. I have an a idol of Baal to pray to. No, he said, drop everything. Don't have alternatives at home. If that doesn't work, this will work. If that doesn't work, I may try this. No, when you are to say that there is nothing else I can try, except my Creator and my Savior. That is how so he said, put away everything. And from your end, direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him only. Then He will deliver you out of the hand of the philistines." So the people put away the Baals and the Ashtarots and they serve the Lord only. Returning is cleansing. First it is cleansing. Do you have alternatives at home? I have come across some people who came from other faiths, Um, they still keep the old idols and the uh, photographs and uh, whatever magical bands and things like that. They don't throw it away, they just keep it aside. In case this didn't work, we will try that. I have come across long-term believers who come to church, very active in teaching in Sunday school even, but occasionally visited the the Mary shrine in Valangani. Because they thought that is also fine. I was traveling in a taxi, a Uber, which had a Ganpati and also a Valangani Mary, Mother Mary from Valangani. So I asked him why are you having two Gods, so I don't think they are. They are they married or what? What is going on now? So he said uh, he was very scared because he said, "Sir, I got that uh, this when I bought this second used vehicle, it came with that the gun the idol on it. So then you then I put my he was a Catholic, my God also there, Mary, Mother Mary as well. So why don't you remove that? He's scared to remove it. He's so scared to remove." The car, the, the gun that came with the car, and but so he decided put that guy there and this lady also here, and so that will be fine. In case she fails, he will rescue. In case she fails, he she will rescue. So that's good. And it was the ride was very, very good. The ride I had with I gave him a five star after the ride, uh, because I was in a sense being being a little uh, sense, when joking actually. I thought, with two gods and an expert driver, my life is in safe hands, I thought. That's bad attitude. Changing the alliance altogether, the false securities that we have. Sometimes, you know, when we have problems, we think that, oh, at least I have a job. Or at least my wife has a job. At least when, you, when wife is unemployed, you say, at least I have a job. Or at least you say, oh, I have at least I have a roof over my head. My loan is paid off. Or will be paid off in three months. That doesn't matter. So my EMI will be paid off. So we find false securities. All these false securities should go. And we should come to a sort of understanding or conviction, I would say, that the preacher had in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm not referring to Ecclesiasticus which is in the Catholic Bible. This is different. And you can simply say it's a preacher. E-C-C-L-E-S-I-S-T-E-S. Ecclesiastes. And it's he says, the wise man says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat. Did I give you the reference? Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25. Uh, there is nothing better for a person than... That he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his time. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Apart from him who can eat or can have enjoyment. That means we have to come to that maturity. That there is no real joy without God. Without Christ in our life. We have come to that real security that there is no real joy without him in our boat. That is not no alternatives will work, but he will definitely do it for us. That is the conviction that they had. The second step that they took returned. A third thing that played a the crucial role. In regaining their lost joy and happiness in the villages and in the hearts of the Israelites after 20 years, long years, was intercession. Intercession plays in a very, very important role in Christian life. We are not called to be islands. We are not called to be islands. We cannot be children of God in isolation. Just me and my God. That will be a very lonely life. That is not. But we are called to pray for each other. There is a relationship, if we are a community, there is a spiritual relationship of responsibility to pray for others, to make others part of our thinking, our prayers. I cannot be selfish. My pain, I should not be only concerned about my pain, my difficulties. I should share the pain of others and bring them to God. This is what young Samuel did. In 1 Samuel 7, 5, he said, Okay, you are crying unto the Lord, you want a change? He said, verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather Israel at Mizpah." and I will pray to the Lord for you. I will not pray, I am not praying for for myself, but I will pray for you. These days, one of the burdens I have, the Lord leads me to do is to encourage the church to pray for each other. I have a specific guidance from God these days to raise a group of people, an army, of intercessors in this church, in this congregation, people first of all pray, make prayer prayer a habit. Secondly, are committed to pray for others, and it is working. Now we are using the app called Prayer Mate, and a number of you have joined it, downloaded it, and shared it. And uh, you are praying, you you are you are working on your prayer life, and there are. a lot of people who absolutely neglected this advice and may God convince you in his own time, in his own way. But those who have joined this and part of this intercessory movement we are seeing great blessings in our lives and in the lives of others. It's wonderful to see your prayers for others answered as, as well as for yourself. That's the joy of Christian life. The joy of Christian life is that I have the privilege to pray for others and see the prayer answered. To see that, and that is an amazing joy. And I pray, please text me if you want more details about it. We are mutually dependent for prayer. Now I was always moved by the example of St. Paul the great missionary the great leader of the early church he was a great man with tremendous spiritual resources this man had visions of god he claims that he was taken up to the third heaven and he says he says extremity of uh, multiple uh, what you can say he was had visions after visions after vision but such a man, who raised the dead, who healed the de- uh, sick, who cast the de- demons out, still he asks people for prayer. He says that you pray for me, as much as I pray for you. let will give you one, two examples. Romans 15.30. Romans chapter 15.30. He writes towards the end of the letter. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. See, amazing. <laughs> he says, Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. I am praying for myself. Will you please also pray for me? Who is this man? The man who has travelled most of Asia those days, and has travelled all over the known Europe those days, Macedonia, Rome, Greece, all these places, a scholar by himself, a leader of the Jews once, he says, I terrifically, and raised in Eutychus. Cast out a demon more than once. He says, I am am in need of your prayers. Intercede for me. To whom did he write? To the church in Rome, churches in Rome. Did he know them before? No. While writing this letter, Paul had not visited Rome. Paul was only longing to go there. He writes to people whom he hasn't met in life. Writing a letter, sending them an email, or a WhatsApp chat, or an update on the prayer mate, please pray for me. I need your prayer. Today you will hear a live testimony at the end of the service. And I'll keep the suspense now. And then he writes in Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, he is thanking the Philippians. Last Thursday we studied Paul's work in Philippi. He established a church there according to Acts chapter 16. And he wrote to them chapter 9, verse chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that through the, your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He is writing from the prison. He writes from the prison in Rome, most probably. He writes that, writes that by your prayers for me, as I am in prison in Rome now. This will turn out for my deliverance. And we have all reasons to believe that that prayer was answered. That history seems to go this way, that Paul was freed. From his first imprisonment in Rome, was set free. Probably Theophilus might have been his advocate before Caesar. And he was set free. And then he traveled to and made a fourth missionary journey to Spain as he wanted. Came back and after a few years was martyred under Nero. But the specific prayer request he made to Philippines, the church in Philippi, was answered. Ask prayer. And do pray for others. Intercession is. So they had, when when they had to come back to God and restore their lost joy and happiness in their life, bring God back to their life, they had one, one Samuel at least to pray for them. Being an intercessor is the greatest role that you can play in the kingdom of God. So I was encouraging people who are using praying intercessors here, gather prayer for yourself, not only for yourself, but for others. Pray for, uh, as we are praying now, pray for Uncle Renjit, who has this problem with myositis. Pray for Amol, who is going to have a miracle in his life. Pray for uh, Lynette travel. Say things that we shared. Did you take a note of it? You had a piece of paper with you? Or did you make a note on your phone? If not, please do that. And pray over the week. And see how God delivers. And be part of the joy. Join the party. To join the party, you have to go to the party first. Then only gain the joy of the party. Now what is the result? I would like to conclude with that. The result was, look, victory. Divine intervention. The Philistines, chapter, the verse 10, 1st Samuel 7, 10, says, As Samuel was offering the burnt offering, I said this is a spiritual solution. Saul and others and Samson before them had tried a military solution with might, with muscle power. Did he? Yeah, he humbled the Philistines, but not forever. But now after Samson comes, Samuel He doesn't have very strong muscles it seems. There's no description of his height or weight or his muscle power or anything like that. But here he comes, all that he can do is, it is a longing for the heart of the people. The people have returned to God, they have cleansed themselves by throwing away the alternatives that they are thinking about, their idols and other options that they had. They are helpless and they have come to misspun and he was offering up the burnt offerings. And the Philistines got this and they drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Remember. Philistines had sharpened swords. The Bible says that they only knew how to make swords. They only knew how to sharpen the things. The sharpening tools were also with them. The The mentoring, the, 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 the to, the maintenance was with them. Manufacturing, maintenance, sharpening, everything was with them. So they came back with their arrows and their uh, spares and their swords. But the Israelites had only stones and they had only thrones, stones and uh, slings and bamboo clubs. But, now, are they equal? No. But the great equalizer is God. God is not only equalizer, God is one who dominates. There was some natural phenomenon Thunder, maybe a shower, a god roar, and the Philistines grew into panic and they withdrew. And definitely Israelites followed them. And they overcame them. And then they restored their cities. Philistines were frightened. Verse 13 says they had victory of Israel. And finally, the cities that they lost were restored. And then, as God returned to their midst, when they turned to God, there was peace till the days of the old days of Samuel. Because Samuel, the book of this says, it concludes with this, that he used to go place to place, from one place to another, and used to offer sacrifices. He was an itinerant prophet. There was no temple, there was no ark. There was no place to offer sacrifices. But he traveled the entire length of Israel. He will camp in one place, call the people, offer a sacrifice, pray to God, and move to the next one before the next Saturday probably, and gather the people. And he moved around all his life and made sure the people remained loyal to God. They saw the work of God afresh every day. That is how joy returned to Israel. Because they came back to God. And they remained with God. And as long as Sam was alive, Samuel was alive, and people were with God, there was tremendous peace. Farmers were felt secure. When they sowed the seed, they knew That God will send the rain and the dew upon it, and they have a good yield, and nobody will plunder them. They knew that full yield will go to their barns, and their cattle and the family and their neighbors will reap. Shopkeepers were secure; they didn't even have to lock their shutters, because they knew the Lord watches over. They were so secure. Women could walk freely in the street. Girls could venture into the streets at night also. Nobody would harass them because the Lord was in charge. Because they had returned to Him. That's what I began with. The joy, Christian joy, the joy in times of paucity, Difficulties and struggles. Put the adjective apparent before them. Apparent lack, apparent difficulties, apparent struggles. These are only not real ones. The joy remains, stays with us. So he did one thing. Samuel did one thing. He set a stone as a memorial. We have memorial stones now. The ministers and the MLAs and the MPs, they open a bridge or a cattle shed or whatever it is, they put a stone with their name on it. But here, Samuel did not put the name of any VIP or his name there. But he inscribed on it, probably, or called it, Eben Ezer. as a memorial. Then, first Samuel seven twelve. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shan, and called its name Ebenezer, For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. That stone, Ebenezer, simply means a stone of help. In Hebrew it doesn't mean more than that. It simply means Ebenezer, the stone of help. He said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Samson, our great hero, tried his military might. No. It was a temporary relief, but a tragic end. Because Samson was crushed under the pillar of the Philistine temple. Samson had a tragic end. Because his solution, the way he tried to solve the problem, was in his might, his muscle. But Samuel, who didn't even have a cane in his hand, all that he had was God. And he knew that God can save. So now the stone stands up, says, till now, God help us. From now on, what does that imply? Till now God helped us. That stone also says, the other side of the stone I would say, that's pure imagination. I would say, it says, from now on, God will help us, provided we stay with him. That is the flip side of the stone called Ebenezer. One side reads, God helped us so far. The flip side of it says, God will certainly help us if we stay with him. If we hand over the keys of our life, the handle of our life to him, he will help us. That's how joy returns to us. May God bless us. Let me conclude in one word, in one sentence. As long as God is with you, And as long as you are with him, if there is an undivided loyalty, the promise of God is that he will be with us till the end of this age. And we after the end of this age, when the new age begins, we will be with him. That's God's promise. May God bless you all. Amen.